you know, there are times as a preacher where you're listening to music and you're like, hey, the choir just sung my message. Now, this is definitely one of those, uh, particularly the song he is making all things new with the description of how after sorrow comes joy, after darkness comes light. I think that is really reflective actually of the structure of Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, which is where we'll be this morning. This is going to be our fourth message on that section and uh, we'll, uh, Lord willing, we'll get all the way to the end of that, of chapter 12 this morning. For those of you who haven't been with us in this uh, little mini-series on chapter 7 through 12, we started in a dark spiritual valley in the history of ancient Israel as chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 recorded the tragedy of the refusal. God had offered to deliver the nation from the armies that were approaching them, but Wicked King Ahaz refused to trust in God and turned for help to the wicked pagan king of Assyria instead. And I really appreciate Jeffrey Grogan's comment on this when he points out how astounding this act of rebellion and foolishness was. He says, quote, how incredible that they should put their trust in a nation whose known character could guarantee nothing but rapine and almost inhuman cruelty and refused to rely on the God who had lavished blessing on them throughout their history. So irrational is humanity's unbelief. And that same irrationality is evident in our day as people refuse to put their trust in a God of love and compassion and instead turn to ideologies that are destructive and cruel and harming and wicked There is the tragedy of the great refusal. But after that dark valley, there's hope. We were then lifted from the valley into the mountaintop of Messianic hope as the promise is given in chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, that God himself will give them a sign. The Messiah will be born of a virgin, and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. But then again, the text in chapter 7 verses 17 through chapter 8 verse 22 descends to another valley which is a description of the people's rebellion they had traded the gentle and life-giving springs of God's covenant love for the polluted river of the Assyrians and so they will be overrun by the Assyrians the way the fields flood when the Euphrates overflows its bank there are consequences for spiritual rebellion Well, that was our first message. And then in our second message, we began studying the glorious promise that the Redeemer, who was promised in chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, will establish a kingdom of peace and righteousness that will last forever. And he will do that because he is the promised ruler. He is the one who is the prince of peace. He is mighty God and his kingdom will never end. And then we ended our third message on this section last week with the revelation that God had used or was going to use the Assyrians to punish his wayward son Israel. Ahaz had hoped the Assyrians would be their rescuers, but really they were the rod. They were the rod that God had picked up and used to discipline his wayward people. But then at the end of this section, God says that after He has used Assyria to punish his wayward people. He will then deal with the terrible wickedness of the Assyrians also. In fact, 
Chapter 10, verse 16 prophesies that the Lord is going to send a wasting disease upon the Assyrian army, and that was fulfilled in 701 BC during the reign of Hezekiah when 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were struck down in a terrible plague by, an, by the angel of the Lord. That's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. And that then brings us out of that final valley to the final mountain peak of messianic hope and it is the tallest one and it is a glorious one it is the mountain peak of messianic hope that i've entitled the restoration the restoration and this is a section which goes all the way from chapter 10 verse 20 all the way through the end of chapter 12 we've followed our text on a journey from the valley of refusal to the mountaintop of the hope of the Redeemer, back down to a valley of the people's rebellion, back up to the hope of the glorious kingdom of the righteous ruler, and then down again to the valley of the rod, and now we come to the culmination of it all, which is the great restoration which will occur at the second coming of Christ. And this is what the entire section has been leading to. While there were certainly some dark valleys in this section, the main point this section is making is that God, in his grace and love, will restore what has been lost through sin. There will be a great and final restoration in the end times in which God will make right that which we have made wrong. And we're going to organize our study of this glorious peak of messianic hope by gazing, as it were, from this mountaintop into four beautiful vistas of hope and joy. And I've called these four vistas the remnant, the root, the regathering, and the rejoicing. And so we're standing on this mountaintop where the great restoration is being taught, and we're looking in one direction and seeing the remnant, another direction seeing the root, another direction seeing the regathering, and then finally looking out over this glorious scene of eternal rejoicing. So let's dive in, beginning in chapter 10, verses 20 through 34, which discusses the remnant, the remnant. Look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 20 and 21 and notice this very important term the remnant of Israel chapter 10 verses 20 and 21 now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them but will truly rely on the Lord the Holy One of Israel a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So in context, God was going to use Assyria as a rod of punishment to his wayward people, but he promises here to preserve a remnant. In fact, as we saw in chapter 7, verse 3, God had even told Isaiah to name his oldest son Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. This little boy was supposed to be a living reminder to the people of God's promise that there would be a remnant and the remnant will return to God. Those same exact words, a remnant will return, appear at the beginning of verse 21. Shear jashub, a remnant will return. God had made, you see, a unconditional covenant with Abraham. He had promised unilaterally to give Abraham's descendants the promised land, to 
make him into a great nation and to bless all of the families of the world through them. And this unconditional promise of land, of seed, and of blessing was not conditional upon the obedience of the nation. It was an unconditional promise which God has kept, is keeping, and will keep to the end. And that is really a theme that runs throughout this section is the covenant faithfulness of God. Now it is true that the nation's violations of the Mosaic law given at Sinai had subjected them to punishment, to exile, to the forfeiture of many blessings. But even so, God always preserves a remnant of Israel. And by the way, when you're looking and interpreting this verse in chapter 10, verse 20, don't cut the text off at the phrase, the remnant. Because what it says here is it talks about the remnant of Israel. And in verse 21, it says a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob. There is nothing in the context or in the content of this text that allows us to allegorize this verse and say that this is a promise made to the church. This is a promise made to the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Jacob, the remnant, as chapter 11 is going to say, of the descendants of David. You see, if you allegorize this verse in your interpretation, you're going to have an immediate problem because once you, if you start allegorizing here in chapter 10, verse 20, you're going to have to keep allegorizing and it's going to get tougher to allegorize as you go because this is not meant allegorically. This is meant directly and literally. You can't allegorize this. For example, if the remnant of Israel in chapter 10, verse 21 is not a remnant of ethnic Hebrews, then who are the people regathered from their dispersion amongst the Gentile nations who come back to the promised land as prophesied in chapter 11, verses 11 through 12? Read that. We'll skip ahead and uh, read that. Look at 11, chap chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. It says, then it will happen on that day. So same end times period. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. It's referring now to the exodus from Egypt and now a second time he's going to recover with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath and from the islands of the sea and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Clearly this is a reference to the Jews to the chosen people of God. My friends, there is simply no way to deny that the terminology, the context, and the details of Isaiah's discussion of the remnant clearly identify the remnant as the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. They're called the remnant, not only the remnant of Israel, but the remnant of Jacob and the dispersed of Judah. Well, why am I kind of driving home that point. Well, first of all, it's because I understand that uh, in Reformed theological circles, they allegorize this passage and they interpret it as all being about the church. But I think in doing so, they really robbed this passage of its power. And someone might say, well, wait a minute. If you're saying, look, this is a prophecy given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then 
for me as a Gentile, I guess this whole section is just totally irrelevant. It, it doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't teach anything for me. Oh, I would say, no, no, it is very much for you. Because what this section teaches us is the faithfulness of God. That when he makes a promise, he never breaks it. He never takes it away from the one to whom it is given and gives it to someone else. He keeps his promises. And the point here is if he keeps his promises to Israel, then we can be sure he will keep his promises to us. And that is a very comforting truth. Because consider for a moment the opposite. If God could revoke his covenant to Abraham or David, then we would have to fear that he could revoke the covenant he has made with us. If the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises is allegorical, then the fulfillment of the New Testament promises might be too. If promises given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can be taken away from them and given to someone else, so too could the promises given to the church be taken away and given to someone else. If Israel has been rejected and replaced as some Reformed theologians teach, then how can we be sure the same thing won't happen to us? You see, the point that Isaiah is making here is that God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. And so we can be sure that he will keep every promise he made to everyone to whom he made them, both to Israel and to us. We cannot appropriate, misappropriate, the promises given to Israel. To do so would be to cast doubt upon the character of God because he swore to do this, Hebrews says. And it is impossible for God to lie. And one of the promises that God makes is that he will always preserve a remnant of Israel. Elijah, in a dark period of their history, thought he was the last one who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But God said, no, no, I have, Elijah, I have kept for myself a remnant, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And here in Isaiah, God says that even in the midst of the coming invasion, a remnant will be preserved. There always has been, is, and always will be a remnant of Israel, a believing remnant of Israel. And notice there are three important things that God promises about the remnant of Israel. First, they will repent. Second, they will return. And third, they will be rescued. Notice in verse 20, it says that they will repent. He says, now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. They're going to repent. They're going to stop trusting in human powers like Egypt and Assyria, both of whom struck them. They had a history of turning for help to the very nations that had wounded them, that had hurt them. And there will come a time in the end time where never again will they do this. They will never again rely on the evil powers. They will truly rely on the Lord. They will repent. And second, it, verse 21 says, the remnant will return. It says a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And when it says they will return to the mighty God, that phrase mighty God is El Gibbon. And we saw that phrase earlier in chapter 9, verse 6, when it says that the Messiah's name will be El Gibbon, the mighty God. 
So this is a direct reference to the remnant returning to faith in the Messiah. This is messianic faith. This is messianic hope. And there have always been a remnant of believing Jews who have believed in the Messiah, those who before the first coming believed he would come, and those who once he has come believed in his coming. They have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will return to him, to El Gabon, the mighty God who is the Messiah. Third, it says in verses 22 through 34 that the remnant will be rescued. Let me read for you verses 22 through the end of this chapter. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. By the way, verse 25 is super important because if you remember four times in chapter nine, chapters nine and 10, it said when the punishments upon Israel were being announced, there's four times where it says, even so, God's hand was still outstretched and his anger was not spent. And so now, finally, after all of those announcements of judgment, in verse 25, it says, God says, for in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will turn from you and be directed towards the Assyrians. Verse 26, the Lord of hosts will arouse, arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Then in verses 28 through 32, it talks about the advancing of the Assyrian armies, but look in verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash, and also those who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. The believing remnant will be rescued. The Assyrian army is going to come, but God is going to preserve a remnant, a believing remnant. By the way, chapter 10, verses 22 through 23 are quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, as he explains why Israel is under God's discipline. And as he continues that discussion into Romans chapters 10 and 11, he affirms in, that in the end times, there will be a great national revival of Israel and there will be the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And Paul explains in Romans 11:29 why this will be the case, why there will be a great restoration for Israel. He says, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Referring to the promises made to Abraham, the unconditional covenant made with him, the unconditional promises made to David, and all of the other promises given to them, Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, and that's how we can be sure that in the end times, 
All of the prophecies and all of the promises made to them and given to them will be fulfilled because God keeps every promises. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. There is a future for Israel. Paul's use of Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 through 23 in his discussion of God's irrevocable promises to Israel shows that there is an eschatological dimension to the prophecy of the remnant in Isaiah 10. And we see really clear indications of this eschatological or end times dimension of this prophecy in the text itself. Notice, for example, that in chapter 10, verse 20, it begins by saying, now in that day. And that phrase, in that day, throughout the Old Testament is speaking about the coming day of the Lord, which happens at the end times. So clearly this is a prophecy which, yes, it looks towards some near fulfillment, but it looks towards the ultimate fulfillment in the end times. The near fulfillment of the prophecy of the remnant was the fact that the Lord didn't allow the Assyrians to wipe the whole nation out. He left a remnant in Judah. Only the 10 northern tribes were taken away. He leaves a remnant. That's a near fulfillment. I think there's another near fulfillment in the return from exile that happens later on. But the final fulfillment of this prophecy of the remnant takes place, according to verse 20, in that day. And notice that it says, in that day, they will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. This indicates that there is a future fulfillment of the remnant prophecy. And other passages in Scripture give us a lot of insight into this. And I just kind of want to zoom out and kind of summarize the teaching of Scripture on this point in the prophecy of the remnant. The Scriptures prophesy that after the church is raptured, the focus returns again to Israel. If you are reading Revelation, you need to understand that most of it is focused on the people of Israel and what happens to them. And during the tribulation period, the prophet Daniel and the book of Revelation teach that Israel will make a covenant with the Antichrist. Much like Ahaz made a deal with the Assyrians. They will once again rely on the wrong source of power and protection. They will rely, as Isaiah puts it, they will rely on the ones who strike them. But they will make a covenant with the Antichrist. And so the covenant that Ahaz makes with the king of Assyria actually foreshadows the covenant that Israel will make with the Antichrist in the tribulation period. But even in the tribulation, there will be, according to the book of Revelation, a righteous remnant of 144,000 believing Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, who will remain loyal to God and who will preach the good news of Jesus the Messiah throughout the world in the tribulation period. And even at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and wages war against them, the remnant will stand firm. They will remain faithful. And so the armies of the Antichrist, the Antichrist gathers the armies of the world and he surrounds Jerusalem. He comes against Jerusalem. And that is when the book of Revelation says Christ returns Not this time humble and lowly on a donkey coming into Jerusalem as a sacrifice for sins, but this time riding a white horse with the armies of heaven to defeat the Antichrist and the nations assembled 
against Jerusalem. And once the Antichrist and his armies are defeated, Christ descends from the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. And when he does, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9 says that there will be a great national revival in Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. And in that day, again, notice that phrase, in that day. This is the eschatological time period, the end times. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Jesus will re-enter Jerusalem and this time they will repent. Mourning for him Remembering what they have done, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. They will see the nail prints still in his hands, and they will repent. So the prophecies concerning the remnant of Israel have a near fulfillment in the rescue of Judah in the time of Hezekiah, and then in the return from exile in the time of Nehemiah. But there will be a final fulfillment in that day, the end times. The point Isaiah is making is there always has been, there always is, there always will be a remnant of Israel who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Well, next, let's look at the next prophecy, which is the root. Chapter 11, verses one through 10. And I wanna give you a little bit of context for this. If you remember back to chapter six, remember Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne and then the Lord says, who, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then the Lord says, look, you're gonna go and preach and no one's gonna listen. And, and Isaiah says, well, how long is this hardness of heart and unbelief gonna last in the nation? And God says, it's gonna last until they're taken away in exile. And Isaiah says, oh Lord, how long? And the Lord says this, it will last until the Lord has removed men far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, yet there will be a tenth portion in it, right? There will still be a remnant. And it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So at the end of chapter six, the Lord compared Israel to a tree which will be cut down, but the stump and the roots will Remain, And chapter 6, verse 13 says that the holy seed is its stump. That was a promise that despite the destruction which was coming upon the northern tribes of Israel, the Davidic line in Judah, from, from which line the Messiah is gonna come, would survive. Israel will be cut down like a tree, but there will be a stump that remains, and that stump is Judah, and the roots of the Messianic line will remain intact. There's a contrast then between that comparison of Israel to a tree and another comparison which is made to an entire forest of trees, which is the armies of Assyria. They're compared to a great forest of tall trees. But at the end of chapter 10, the Lord says that that forest of giant trees will be cut down, and unlike Israel, they will be cut down to the roots. So there's a contrast here. 
Two kingdoms are being pictured, both of them pictured as trees. One will be brought down and destroyed completely, that refers to Assyria, and one will be cut down but will be left with a stump and roots, that refers to the remnant of Israel and Judea. And that is the context for the joyous prophetic announcement in chapter 11, verse one, that despite the nation's disobedience, God will still fulfill the covenant he made with David. Look at chapter 11, verse one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So it's from the Davidic line. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. From the line of Jesse, from David's line, a shoot bringing new life will spring forth from the stump. From the roots and the stump, a descendant of David will come. The Messiah is going to come and he will turn the barren stump into a fruitful tree once again. I love how Kidner puts it. He says, the tree was felled but not finished. And its growing point is one man. Have you ever seen an oak tree that is cut down, but the stump remains and the roots are still alive and in the right conditions, a new shoot will spring forth from the stump and from that shoot, an entire tree can grow and bear its fruits. That's what's going to be the case with Israel. The tree was felled but not finished and its growing point is this shoot that springs from Jesse, one man, the Messiah. That one man is called in the New Testament the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus will one day take his seat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He will rule and reign with justice and righteousness on that throne forever as prophesied in the Davidic covenant. So that's the first joyous announcement. God will still fulfill the covenant he made with David. The next joyous prophetic announcement is in verse two when the role of the Holy Spirit is revealed that this will happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is going to make this happen. I want you to notice, by the way, the clear Trinitarian statement at the beginning of verse two. It says, the spirit of of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him that is the Messiah. Here we have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in a single phrase. And so as I've been saying, the doctrine of the Trinity was clearly taught throughout the Old Testament long before the first coming of Christ. From the first page, as I pointed out last week, to this line, it is clear that there are three persons, one God, one in essence, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, there's a third joyous prophetic announcement, and that's made in verses three through five, and that is that the Messiah will restore true justice to the earth. The Messiah will restore true justice to the earth. Look at verses three through five. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. In other words, you know, the scripture says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not going to judge by what he sees. He's going to 
judged by what's actually in the heart. He's also not reliant upon what he's told by others because he knows all things. So he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This is true justice brought by the one who is just. And I want you to notice how true justice is described here. True justice is described as delighting in the fear of the Lord, not judging by what his eyes see, deciding with fairness for the afflicted, being characterized by righteousness and faithfulness. This is really helpful to evaluate all of the claimed justice movements in our day. You know, I'm... Because living in, in southern Ukraine, we became fluent in Russian. I'm able to listen to what's said on Russian state television and the message that they're sending out and what they're trying to accomplish. And they have a vision for worldwide justice, a justice imposed by force and ruled by the Kremlin. You don't want that kind of justice. It's a counterfeit justice, a very brutal form of justice. And just like that is a counterfeit form of justice, there are many other counterfeit pretenders to the label of justice. So how can we know what's true justice and counterfeit? When we evaluate whether or not various so-called justice movements are promoting true justice or just some deceptive counterfeit, we need to ask whether or not they fit the description given here. Does this movement or this ideology delight in the fear of the Lord? Do they judge not by what they see, but with righteousness and fairness? Do they judge not by rumors that they hear, but with righteousness and faithfulness? And most of all is Christ at the center of this claimed movement towards justice. You cannot have true justice without the one who is truly just. You know, the Bible talks a lot about justice. This is our topic. And it tells us that Jesus is the only one who has the right to define justice, and he's the only one who can bring full justice. So don't get swept up in any movement foreign or domestic, which claims to advocate for justice while ignoring and rejecting Jesus. You can't have justice without Jesus. There is no justice without Jesus. He must be at the center of our striving towards justice, for he alone is the just one. You know, the world often shouts slogans, and one of the slogans you'll hear is, no justice, no peace. When we hear that from people, we need to very gently and lovingly point them to the Prince of Peace. For it is he who will bring true justice. When they say no justice, no peace, we need to say no Prince of Peace. There can be no true justice. There are hurting, angry souls and they chant no justice, no peace, which is rooted in 
an ideology of revenge. But Isaiah 11 says that it is the prince of peace who will bring justice. No prince of peace, no hope for justice. So if you long for justice, and you should, if you strive for justice, and you should, in fact, you must, you're commanded to work and strive for justice. But when you do that, you need to follow the manual of justice and follow the bringer of justice, and you should long for the coming of Christ. Until he comes to establish his kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice, we must strive to preach and practice the principles of divine justice which are revealed in Scripture. And so, well, wait a minute. Where are the principles of divine justice revealed in Scripture? Well, they are revealed throughout. But if you want an excellent place to start, turn to Matthew chapter 5 and begin reading the Sermon on the Mount. That is social justice as defined by the Prince of Peace. True social justice movements should look and sound like the Sermon on the Mount. And if they don't, you can be sure they're co-opting a good intent. The Messiah will bring joyously true justice. There's a fourth joyous prophetic announcement and it's made in verses six through nine and that is that the Messiah will reverse the curse on creation itself. Look at verses six through nine. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Messiah will reverse the curse on creation, will restore the peace and safety that existed in Eden. You know, in Romans chapter eight, it says that the creation itself groans waiting for the curse to be lifted. Have you ever watched a nature show and watched some poor animal being slowly eaten alive by a predator? And you watch these shows and it's, it's gut-wrenching because you hear the groaning of the animal as it's being devoured. When we see such things, it should remind us of the terrible curse brought on all creation by us by the fall of man into sin. And when we see such things, it should cause us to long for the day when Christ will return and lift the curse, restoring the peace and safety which all creatures enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. This prophecy says, the lion will eat straw like the ox. There will be no more predation. There will be no killing. There will be no stealing. There will be no more destruction including in the animal world. How did it get to where it is now? Well, God makes Eden, which is full of peace and safety for all creatures, and he gives 
mankind, Adam and Eve, the responsibility to govern this creation. But instead of governing in the peace and safety designed by God, Adam and Eve joined the satanic rebellion, a rebellion characterized, Jesus says, by death, destruction, and theft. The enemy comes, Jesus said, to steal and kill and destroy. Those are the characteristics of his kingdom. And mankind follow the satanic rebellion, bringing the entire creation under the curse of death, destruction, and theft. And that is what we see in the animal world. That is what we see among human beings. Christ, the Redeemer, is going to reverse the curse. That which was lost in Eden will be renewed in the millennial kingdom, and it is prophesied here. And so we long for that day. If you love animals, you should love the appearing of Christ. A fifth joyous prophetic announcement is made in verse 10. And that is that Israel will fulfill its God-given role as a light to the Gentiles. Verse 10. Then in that day, the nations, and this is a word referring to Gentiles, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. This shoot that springs from Jesse's root, the Messiah, they will come to him. And he will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place as he sits on that throne will be glorious. Israel will fulfill its God-given role as a light to the Gentiles. So in chapter 11 we see there will be a remnant and from David's root the Messiah will come to save the whole world and he will bring a kingdom of peace and righteousness. And that brings us to chapter 11 verses 11 through 16 which prophesies the regathering the regathering look at chapter 11 verses 11 through 16 then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath and from the islands of the sea and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Jesus before the cross says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks he will do that in the end times he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west together they will plunder the sons of the east they will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind and he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. There's gonna be a second exodus. Just like the Lord stretched out his hand and, and with the plagues compelled the Egyptians to let his people go and just as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt with the mighty hand of the promised land there will come a time in the end times where he will defeat the wicked nations the armies of the antichrist and then he will gather his people the dispersed amongst the nations like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her her wings there will be a great regathering 
And again, while there was a partial near-term fulfillment of this prophecy in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when there was a return from exile, not all of the dispersed Jews were returned at that time. And there are three indications here in the text that the final fulfillment of this prophecy is still future. It occurs in the end times. First, notice again the phrase, on that day. It's repeated in verse 11. And again, that's an eschatological term pointing toward the end times. And then second, notice that verses 11 through 12 says that the regathering will not just be a return of the exiles from Assyrian captivity or Babylonian captivity, as occurred in the post-exilic period, but it will be a regathering of the Jewish diaspora from all the nations, from the four corners of the earth. And at the time of the exile, they weren't dispersed amongst the four corners of the earth. They were in exile in Babylon. And so this is a, a regathering of a dispersion which, which has been, where the Jewish people have been spread all over the world and that regathering from the four corners of the earth is clearly still future. And the third evidence of still future is that there are geopolitical and environmental changes prophesied in verses 13 through 16 that simply haven't happened yet. And so while there's been a partial near fulfillment which occurred in the return from Babylonian exile, the full and final fulfillment of this prophecy is still future. In the end times, there will be a great regathering of the believing remnant of Israel from the four corners of the earth. The Messiah is going to bring his native people back to their ancestral homeland, back to the promised land, the Holy One. And in so doing, he will fulfill the promise God made to give the Holy Land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. They have not possessed the land for a very long time, and they do not possess the entire land now. But when the Messiah comes, he will regather them all from the four corners of the earth, and they will live in the land promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The section of the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 through 12, ends then with the great rejoicing. The great rejoicing. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And in this chapter, there are two distinct sections, and they're both marked by the phrase, you will say on that day. That phrase occurs in verse one and it occurs again in verse four. In other words, when this great restoration comes, when, when the remnant is preserved and the root of David comes and he regathers his people, when they're regathered, there's gonna be this great rejoicing and he tells them there's two things they're gonna say on that day. And the first thing is something they say to God and the second thing is something they say to each other. Verses one through three describe what the redeemed remnant say to God and verses four through six describe what the redeemed remnant say to each other. Read along with me. Then you will say on that day, and here's the, what they say to God. I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. That's what the redeemed remnant say to God. And then in verse four, what they will say to each other. And in that day you will say, give thanks to Yahweh, call on his name. 
Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Wasn't it glorious when the choir was declaring for us the mighty deeds of the Lord? Imagine in the millennial kingdom when the nation of Israel declares to the world the great and mighty deeds of the Lord like a choir leading the rest of the world in the praise of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the end of our journey. Four-week journey through chapter 7 through 12, we've seen the refusal, the redeemer, the rebellion, the ruler, the rod, and then the great Restoration, And from that final mountain peak, that culminating mountain peak of Messianic hope, we've looked out on four glorious vistas of joy as we've seen the Lord's promise to preserve a remnant, to bring the root of David, to regather the people, and then to end with eternal and great rejoicing. You may ask, what's the practical application for us of this passage? I'd say, let's end where chapter 12 did. Let's rejoice. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Lord, we do rejoice. Lord, our journey in chapter 7 through 12 has led us through some dark valleys. But Lord, you have raised us up to this glorious peak of messianic hope. And Lord, from where we are in time and history, Lord, we know these promises are true because in the first coming, you already fulfilled so much. And so Lord, we wait with great anticipation to what you will do in the second coming. Lord, until that time, help us to be faithful to make your deeds known among the nations, to help them to remember that your name is exalted. We ask this in Jesus, the Messiah's name, amen. Amen. Well, in a few minutes.